0: Josh, could you play some great shout-out music there? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, one of them, you may know him, he's Liel Liebowitz. Hello, Liel. Shalom, shalom. And the other one, live from the slopes, or the ski lodge near the slopes in Colorado, tablet deputy editor Stephanie Button.
1: Is it Apre Pod yet?
0: I, I don't know. Is it? Are you Are you
1: a <laughs> I don't know. We haven't finished this yet. So <laughs> are, you,
0: are you in your ski athleisure? Are you sitting by the fire? Yes, I'm in
1: my chalet. Are uh, you
0: sipping on a eggnog? hot toddy? What is a hot toddy? Is it whiskey based?
1: I actually did have a hot toddy the other night. It was delicious. Was it? But I guess I'm in I'm in Colorado with the coat.
0: Nice. This week we will be speaking with Torah teacher Yiska Smith and with Israel's consul general in New York, Danny Diam. Also, I had a brief chat with legendary feminist scholar, Carol Gilligan, who just wrote a really, really interesting piece about anti-Semitism and the Women's March. The next iteration of the Women's March is this Shabbat, January 18th, for all the people for whom it's convenient to travel to be there, this Shabbat, January 18th, the women will march. Uh, We have not seen a lot of each other. We have been, Stephanie, you've been in in California, now Colorado. Liel and I have been in Westport, Connecticut, speaking to (laughs) the Jews of Fairfield County in the uh, world's
2: most grand library ever. Since the Library of Alexandria, I think I've never seen a library <laughs> like this. This is the Library of Congress Fairfield County Branch. It was so beautiful and
0: we were there with with the Kess, the leader of the Ethiopian Jewish community who was happened to be in the audience in Westport, uh, doing his his swing through Fairfield County. And it was really a special event. We've, we've loved all of our book events. This one, I don't think, Leo, we've never done one, just the two of us no, before. This, this, the first. this is our, our manly debut. That's right. And Stephanie, that night, you got to be in Philadelphia.
1: So that was your manly debut. Yes. But this past weekend, I was in Fountain Valley in Orange County, California, for their Jewish Women Author Series. Ooh. And so I was like, guys, it is great to be here without my co-hosts, who literally were not invited. <laughs>
2: I love how we have <laughs> basically a mechitza now. <laughs> Mark and I do the Ezrat immediately do the Israel it's perfect that's right there's
1: an amazing rabbi there rabbi David Young and he's one of those like comic book obsessed fish jam band loving but he's he's one of those Jews it was a Shabbat service and I actually really like the events that are Shabbat services that lead into a book event I do too and it was a beautiful you know actually there was this amazing cantor there her name is Jenna and she did the Lachado D Leonard Cohen hallelujah
3: and mm-hmm. I said I was like mm-hmm. I
1: knew this existed but I had never heard it before and it is really really something
2: And I have to say Stephanie sent me photos from the rabbi's office. I mean, that's a religious leader for you, like a huge Spider-Man mask. Of like, course. Cool comic He was like, stuff. these were
1: all gifts. But so so he had said, he's like, you know, come before we'll have Shabbat dinner. And so I was like, okay, we'll go somewhere. He made dinner at the synagogue for me and like a handful of congregants. And it was amazing. And he was like, you guys were just talking about latkes. So I made, he basically made chicken soup and latkes. It was like the most delicious, and there was, you know, other food too. But it was so fun and so sweet. He was like
0: a deadhead Fish head, comic book head, Stanley fan, and then yes, Jewish and grandma then when he got
1: me on s- yes, exactly. Making. When he got me on stage, he did point out. He's like, "I don't like this thing in your fish entry <laughs> in the encyclopedia," <laughs> and I was like, "Did you bring me here to tell me this on stage?"
0: <laughs> What's funny is that. Liel and I in Westport. One of our hosts was the Jewish Federation of Upper Fairfield County. We we don't traffic with lower yeah, not Fairfield, lower, not lower. Those
2: and, scoundrels. And
0: he was like a major. He he pulled down his socks to show us one of his two tattoos. He showed us the one that is the the little turtle playing the banjo, the Grateful Dead turtle. And he went on and on about his his deadhead past and present. Then he showed us pictures on his phone of his daughter's tattoos and of his matching tattoo. And then we we sang Sugar Magnolia. It was a, the crispy Jew. There's I gotta some say, funky
2: Jews out there. The, is what we're saying. The hippie Jew, the crispy Jew, is such a type. We right. interviewed Harley Cohen on this show. One I, of the best kinds. They we really are. Got. Do you get them in Israel? Yes, but they're mostly settlers, religious, who's kind of right. crossed over with, you know, revelations of all kinds of sorts, which is really interesting. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and where are you now Stephanie? It's like Sugar Mashiach.
1: So I'm not, I'm not done with Fountain Valley oh. yet because we, there were a lot of people there who um, listened to the show. It was really fun. I met Jonathan Tice and Genevieve and Jasmine. It was really, really fun. And they, there was a whole conversation afterwards about, Liel, your schnitzel in a blender.
2: <laughs> people are traumatized. <laughs> Never forget. Never forget.
1: They were like, I just, I mean, is it true? And I was like, I do not think you would lie about something like that.
2: <laughs> I love, by the way, you could tell people you did all the drugs in the world. And they'd be like, oh whatever, it's fine, man. Tell people you put schnitzel in a blender and be like, "You're a disturbed
0: <laughs> person who needs help." See, I was I was just praying it wasn't true, and I, I blocked it out. I'd forgotten it was
2: hundred percent. It's a hundred percent. A loss.
1: So I went from California to Colorado, and I am in. I'm on the annual Cohen family vacation, which isn't just my Cohens. There's there's their best family friends are also the Cohens. <laughs> So they come here every year. It's amazing. And I got here. I got here like a day later and I was like, they're like, who are you here with? And I was like, the Coens. And they're like, which ones? Uh, and I was like, the Wendy Coens. Oh.
2: <laughs> so I'm I'm glad. I'm glad everyone's traveling. You know where I've been? Where have you been, Leo? I've been nowhere. You know why? Why? Because about a week and a half ago, uh, on literally two days notice, before we restarted the seven and a half year cycle of reading the Talmud, very much uh, through the auspices of our producer, Josh Cross, decided, hey, you know what would be really fun? If we just jumped into a Daf Yomi daily podcast in which we read a page of Talmud a day. For seven and a half years. For seven and <laughs> a half years. Because that's how you want to take that kind of commitment and be like, eh, okay, let's just do it. This is what happens when you get like a
0: gearhead audiophile like Josh and <laughs> a religion nerd like Leal together, like, yep, yep why not? It. Let's start a daily podcast. Can we do it? Yeah.
2: Can we technically do it? Let's just do it. Fucking do it. It's amazing. It's called Take One. Stefani has uh, already been on it. Merck is recording his debut today <laughs> to come uh, next week. You know what? Honestly, it is a completely, I would say it this way, it's intoxicating. It really is like jumping into something and just getting completely mesmerized because you forget how much it contains, and you forget how relevant it is to today. And I just am so grateful for all the people who are joining on this trip. And, and rock on. Four and a half years from now, you're going to be wandering, feeding the pigeons
0: in Central Park, mumbling about Raish Lakish right. and Rob Papa. <laughs> just
2: it's kind like, of scratching
0: my beard. You'll be an emaciated 112 pounds. <laughs> Lisa will
1: have long Honestly, ago moved I'm out. Really, I'm like very moved by this. And first of all, so we had obviously – Adam Kershaw a few weeks ago. um, I don't even know what time is at this point when it was, but it was the beginning of the year. And it was the end of the cycle. And the conversations, I mean, the emails we've gotten to like Tablet's main account, because we did a lot on on the site and on the show about, you know, the end of the cycle. Because
0: Adam was writing a weekly column about reading the Talmud for seven and a half years.
1: And there are a lot of people, at least even in just our Facebook group, who are like, you know what? I'll give it a try. It's sort of like the ultimate New Year's resolution. Yeah. Like to just film yeah, me. And it's <laughs> every it's, day. I'm really, and I, I think I also think there's something about like this moment where actually it's really refreshing to do something that, like, yes, it's online, right? Cause you might not have the book. You can look up the the Safari link, which is a great, a great resource. But like it's not the news. It's not like the hottest book of this season. It's like, it's actually like a a a true escape from the outside world right now, even though it is obviously, as I now know, quite relevant to the world today.
2: It is a fact that there are, in fact, zero mentions of Donald Trump in the Talmud. Yeah. That's right. You could read as much as you he want. He's not Don't tell it. him
1: that.
0: I've been keeping up mostly. Like I've been getting in about a page a day. Again, I don't own it costs $900 to buy a full set of the Talmud on eBay. I mean, if you want the Steinsaltz or the Davidson translation, you're talking mm-hmm. you want a cool grand. Right. And there it's and used there are no used there're no cheap used copies because people snap those up. But if you go to safaria.org, they have the whole Talmud and you can just keep scrolling through it. And it is kind of beautiful. It's like, wow, back then they were arguing about, you know, if you've been working hard and you're tired are you st- if you're a laborer? Are you still obligated to say your prayers? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a rich person, what's your obligation to the laborer? Um, are there angels in graveyards? I mean, the same superstitions, right? I mean, I'm waiting for the tractate where they argue about vaccinating kids. What? It's like it's the same conversations. It's we're It's the same conversation, only with you know more erudition, more erudition, but also more demons and That's angels. Right. And, and
1: and Mark, maybe someday you'll get to be on this podcast.
0: Maybe uh, today, Leal, <laughs> Leal's a, a to, I mean, what this podcast is again? You can get it on iTunes or a Stitcher, or any of your platforms. It's Called Take One. There are other Take One. So you want the Tablet Magazine Take One that's about reading a page a day of Talmud for the next uh, 12,000 years. Right? Uh, and Until
1: podcasts no longer exist.
0: It's basically, it's, you know, eight or nine minutes each day and Liel grabs whatever friend is available and says, would you read these couple pages? And then we're going to schmooze and talk about them. And it really is quite fun. It's also, I have a little bit of jealousy, a little feeling of usurpation when I, I tune in and I hear, this is Liel Leibowitz. I'm the host of your podcast, of your daily Talmud podcast. And
2: I think, As I said, four and a half years now from when I crack my... Mentally. That's right. Be like, I'm Mark Oppenheimer. I'm fresh off the bench. We saw, it. saw it coming.
1: <laughs> but people guys, I need to just tell you one more thing about my time here in Colorado before I let this show continue to its logical conclusion. We're not jealous enough. You're going to keep rubbing it in
0: as you phone in from the slopes.
1: You know what? I'm not in either of the interviews that are airing today. One of them is a Mark special and the other is just Liel.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> so I get to t- I get to talk now. I learned how to play Mahjong or Maj, as really? both grandmothers and Amazing. the young people are calling it. Whoa. Every synagogue, by the way, so in Fountain Valley, there's like twice a week there's Mahjong. And so I was thinking about it and then we were we just learned it the other day. The other Cohen mom taught us. And I like it a lot.
0: Is it easy to learn? I mean, did you do an hour and all of a sudden you know mahjong?
1: It's not hard to learn, but it's hard to be good at. Okay, like you can play along, but it's hard to be strategic. I can't even Sarah, have Sarah, my on, sister. I lot, can't even
2: have a mental what, image. It's not a card game, right? It's like some sort of tile. Dominoes. It's Chinese Jewish right? dominoes, right? It's
1: basically you. Okay, there's four people who sit at a table, and then each of them have this like little like contraption that. Hold, both holds their tiles but then also like pushes them out. The pushing out is like a big part of the game. <laughs> um, and so yeah, right, you start with 13 tiles but there's this whole like complicated way of how you deal them and um, and then you go around and you basically have seven. It's like Rummy Cube, I think. I've never played that, but that's what I'm told. Huh. It's like. like
0: Mancala mixed with Rummy Cube, right. played by elderly
2: Jewesses. With, with Dominoes. With it Dominoes. It's so with, yeah. funny
1: and kind of so perfect. And my favorite thing is so there's a card that tells you all like the possible formations you could have. Uh-huh. But the card comes out each year, and you have to buy the card from like, the Mahjong Association. Wait,
0: there's a World Secretariat of Mahjong that distributes. Bitcoin numbers yes, on her a name, schedule? her name is
2: Doris. <laughs> <laughs> she lives at the Fountain Blow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she is in charge of the whole Mahjong.
1: Anyway, so I'm down to play Mahjong with anyone who wants to play. Where do I get a good set? Is like, there words just, with friends for people. Mahjong?
0: Can you play online or, or phone Mahjong?
2: I,
1: Maj. That is a very good question. You still have to buy the card, though. Yeah. Can't play without the card.
0: It's, it's Dafyomi. It's Daily Page a Day of Talmud. I'm Talmudizing. Stephanie is gonna be a It's gonna be a Mahjong be a Mahj queen. Okay. What do, what, do you? Do? What do I? What have I got? I have nothing. You're I have five no children. I have no new grandkids. Children for that
1: probably need attention. Fripperies. Along the lines of what about like racquetball, squash?
0: Oh, but for a tennis player to take up squash is some sort of concession.
1: Well, I just want it to be like something that old Jews do because that's really how you live your best life.
2: You could watch an episode of Nine Hundred Two One Zero a day. A day. That would be your. You're Dylan Yomi. By yeah, Dylan? Dylan Yomi. That's very funny. I want to put
0: that to the J. Crew. Like, J. Crew, you know me. You've been with me for years. What's missing from my life? Just write to us. Unorthodox. Who's down with I OPP? <laughs> yeah, you know me. A little news to the Jews. First, some sad news. Liel's candidate of choice, Marianne Williamson, has dropped out of the Democratic I'm sorry. race for. she has suspended
2: her <laughs> campaign. I still have hope.
0: She will She's consciously uncoupled from, right. from the race for president, leaving, as far as I could tell, two Jews: Michael Bennett, the the leading. I think he's still in it, right? Colorado Senator Michael Bennett and uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders still flying, and Michael Bloomberg. And you're right, never forget. And Deval Patrick, and Elizabeth Warren. No, I'm just I'm jewing them all.
2: All, all Jews, all Jews. Yeah.
0: But Marion Williamson, so we'll be saying a kaddish for her campaign. At the local Chabad Minion. I believe in the revolution of love. It cannot be stopped. <laughs> new face of smart water. We've all been wondering who's going to replace Jennifer Aniston as the face of smart water. It on has Billboards.
2: Been a source of much anxiety. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, it has been announced. Gal Gadot herself is the new face of smart water. So Scar- ScarJo has, has SodaStream locked down. Gal Gadot has the smart water. The, the, the Jewish women are taking like over a, the water. Is there a beverage we do not control?
1: <laughs> they just want to make sure that you've eaten and right. you're hydrated. Do. And that you wait 30 minutes before swimming. <laughs> I think this is great news. First of all, because this means that like Gal Gadot's face will actually be everywhere. Remember, everywhere. Jennifer Aniston's face was like on billboards and magazines. This furthers her conquering of, I think, like American media mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Because mm-hmm. She'll be in all these magazines. It's a strong
0: um, brand extension.
1: Are people going to start boycotting smart water? Because that is something funny, because it's like a water you actually don't have to drink because it's just water. It's okay. just water. Like you could drink any other kind of water or just tap water. So, like, I'm excited to see whether there'll be like some real, some good boycotts. It's but kind you of won't
2: be smart <laughs> if you don't drink that water.
0: It's kind of win-win. Either they're supporting the the ongoing march of Gal Gadot through world media, or they're boycotting it and not spending money on. Uh, this fake stupid nonsensical thing that
2: no one should ever
0: drink called smart water yeah. but that's not the most important bit of no. Food News this week. Most important bit is that Impossible Foods, which has given us the rather tasty Impossible Burger, which I've consumed after acquiring it at a Burger King's drive-thru no fewer than three times. (laughs) But
1: no more than five.
0: (laughs) But no more than five has Impossible Pork. It is a 0% pig. It is just, it is fake pork. Presumably they will acquire a Heckscher somewhere along the way. And that seems to be a big deal. According to the article at Vox.com, the California-based startup announced that it's created plant-based pork and they offered samples at the annual Consumer Electronics Show. Why the Consumer Electronics? Show I don't know. The lucky first tasters said it tastes pretty much like the real thing. If it catches on, Vox writes, impossible pork could be a consequential leap forward for the plant based meat movement. Pork is the most consumed meat on the planet, accounting for 36 percent of global meat intake and 50% of Jewish meat intake.
1: By the way, 36%, that's like a little on the nose. I it's know. Like a little offensive.
2: Can I just <laughs> say global meat intake is a great name for an album? <laughs> <laughs>
0: it would be by the Meat Puppets. By the Meat Puppets. By puppet. the Meat Puppets. Global, the global Meat, meat in-
1: Conspiracy.
0: Liel, have you any news of the Jews? As our roving European East of the Atlantic correspondent, what do you have for us today?
2: I'm obsessed with a certain news story that is all I want to read and watch and think about. And you may be judgy here, but I don't care because I think it's a really important and a tremendously Jewish story. Is
0: it Qasem Salami? It is Is it the presidential? Qasem it... Salami. Lo-
2: Kasam Soleimani. But I love your version better. <laughs> I thought he was it's Kata's Delhi meets the Iranian revolution. You want some of Salami? Is it uh, Bernie Sanders no, v. Elizabeth Warren? It is Megsit. Are you following Mexit? Stephanie, I know you are following Mexit. Of
1: course I'm following Mexit.
2: It is the uh, I'm out in front of Mexit. I don't follow nothing. It is the announcement uh, by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, <laughs> Harry um, and and Meghan that they are stepping back or down or away <laughs> from senior roles in the royal family. Consciously uncoupling. They're consciously uncoupling from the Queen, which is <laughs> creepy to go move to America and do their own thing. Now, here's the thing. First time I read about this, it struck me as the most Jewish story ever. It's like your grandma has this tradition that's (laughs) been passed in her – family for generations and he was sort of not feeling it man you kind of want to go with your wife who's not of that tradition you want to move away like be modern and pursue your own businesses they're not even going to
0: come home for the holidays the
2: family is very upset (laughs) be like guys we've been dealing with this for 40 years we could teach you how to do this you don't have to freak out interesting
0: i mean it was kind of all in the cards when he married someone named megan i mean what next what next (laughs) princess stacy clarissa no, Clarissa is actually a good British wow. name. Stacy, <laughs> Stacy.
1: But I actually really like this reading because it proves that we can make quite literally anything about us. But my favorite thing about Meghan Markle when she first was like in the news because they got engaged or they were dating. So she her, she was married first to an American, right? Actually, a Jewish guy from Great Neck. And so there was this article in the Daily Mail where they had like found pictures of their wedding. And they were referring to the wedding chair dance That's right. where they lifted the bride and groom on chairs. <laughs> and I was like, tell me more, Daily Mail, about right. this wedding chair dance you do.
2: At <laughs> these strange weddings. <laughs> I Seriously, I think we need a delegation of reform rabbis to tra- travel to Buckingham Palace and be like, guys, look, we got this. Right. <laughs> You, we, you need to reform royalty. We're going to help you through this. It's right. going to be just fine. Everyone's going to be chill.
0: You can incorporate all your traditions yeah, into one family it. holiday. We, you, could, you could do this. Got this Look covered. at us. Absolutely.
1: It sounds like the plot of next year's Hallmark Hanukkah movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she is a Jewish princess. Literally. <laughs>
0: Friends, those of you who know Yiska Smith know a lot of things about her, that she's a revered Torah teacher, that she travels Israel, America, all over, giving classes, that she has books out. Our conversation, of course, dealt with mainly Rav Avraham Cook and identity and basically Judaism. And it was one of my favorite conversations of the year so far. The documentary that she has made called I Was Not Born a Mistake will be at the New York Jewish Film Festival on January 21st. Have a listen to this interview. Then you will want to see the documentary. Check it out. I'm so pleased to have as our Jew of the Week uh, Yiska Smith, who is a spiritual activist, a teacher, and the star of the new documentary, I Was Not Born a Mistake. Uh, Yiska, it's so good to have you here as our Jew of the Week.
4: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's just wonderful to be
0: here. It's long overdue to have you because you are, um, in, in in the world of people who uh, who study text, you are a celebrity. And um, although we've never learned together, I've had many people say you should really learn with Yiska at some point. So, um Tell us a little bit about you know what's the journey that took you right now to the place where you are. You teach at Pardes and elsewhere, and uh, and you speak all over the place. Um, that wasn't always your calling. You've been a Chabad shliach. You've been you've been a lot of things. So so tell us a little bit how we got to the present moment. Uh, well, so
4: how did we get to
0: the present? How moment? How did we get to the present? Like it starts in Gan Eden, yeah. right? And
4: <laughs> so I I'd like to be being a student and teacher of text. I'd like to go back to two. Specific texts from Rav Cook, actually. Okay. So, Rav Cook. With a K, Cook. Yeah, Rav Avraham Hakrahain Cook passed away in 1935 in Yerushalayim, was the first official appointed Rav of, at that time, British Mandate Palestine. Right. Uh, came to be known as the father of religious Zionism. Right. And he had very wide arms. He touched uh, ultra, ultra Orthodox Jews and he touched ultra, ultra secular Jews. Uh, dealing with the uh, malaria-infested swamps in the Galio. And for him, it was all the same. He he touched souls. That's what he was really touching. And he wrote in his commentary to the uh, Haggadah for Pesach, and he wrote in the commentary, in the introduction to the commentary, what is the difference between a free person and a slave, spiritually speaking? He said a free person is a person who is ne'aman in Hebrew, faithful to his or her inner essence, which is one's own truth, inner being, which he calls the soul, the uh, image of God in which we were created. A person who's a slave goes outside of oneself and looks for direction from other people. He uses the word matov, mara. what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what is nice, what is not nice. And he's constantly living with this, almost in fear of letting people down, as if he's enslaved. When I learned that teaching, it very much resonated. There was a resonance with my own journey. Having been born with gender identity dysphoria, when I came into Judaism in my 20s, I felt I was grappling with this uh, coming together of different roads, so to speak, my spirituality, my newfound uh, Zionism, Jewish tradition, and the quest to live an authentic life. And it was really, really difficult. And it was uh, also very worthwhile. Mm-hmm. There w- was a real healthy tension there. I didn't always approach it in the most healthy way, but the end shot is another teaching of Rav Cook really eloquently explains how I really got to where I am now in light of that first teaching. He explains in his Sefer called Shmona Kavatzim, 8.0. Folios, which was written in Yafo in Jaffa between 1904 and 1914, before he moved to Yerushalayim. he writes there that the soul needs to grow, needs uh, to expand, needs to be passionate. The words in Hebrew are beautiful: lehit <speaking in Hebrew> lehit to be strong, and lehit and <speaking> lahev <in Hebrew> to, really, to, to really be present with life. He said, in order to do that, we need to do two things. We need to remove obstacles that prevent that. It's like growing a garden. You need to weed. You need to remove in order to provide the right environment. And then provide the right environment. Again, with the garden, the right hydration, the right soil, the right fertilizer. So for me, I understood that spiritually, I needed to undergo a tikkun. It was like becoming more whole with myself. It was a healing of removing this obstacle that really didn't allow me to fully explore the potential of my own spirituality to be in alignment with Jewish tradition and to be authentic. They didn't have to be in conflict with each other. And that's how I got to be where I am today. So at that point, you were a male-presenting,
0: biologically male Chabad rabbi. Yes. Sir. That
4: was when I lived in the Jewish quarter. I was the director of the Chabad House at that time for English-speaking programs. It's a big deal. It is a big like, deal. You're a big Lubavitcher. I mean, that was... I would say so. Yeah. The responsibility
0: <laughs> was uh, ominous. <laughs> right. You, you, you put a lot of tefillin on people. Um, <laughs> well, you were probably higher up than that. But uh, you, I but, don't know about that. You know, so when you say so you had to remove obstacles, were the obstacles in terms of you had to get out of that career, you had to get out of that body or more into... More out
4: career? of that body. I, I felt from a very young, as a young person, I very much felt called to teach. Mm-hmm. Of course, how I teach today is different than how I taught then, but to share text to explore to grapple with the text together and to help what I'm doing now is I'm really helping I mean the the global messaging of my whole journey is that everyone needs to be free mm-hmm. everyone has obstacles that preclude celebrating their own inner being and today we see there's a there's a growing crisis there's a growing crisis right across the board, different countries in our modern time of alienation, of disconnect from self, of feeling lonely. And much of my own journey informs that. So when I was the director of the Chabad House, I very much believed in what I was teaching. Very, much. I was really captured by the spiritual uh, depth and the connotations of what that implied. But I felt that there was no space for me in that because I wasn't being honest. Mm -hmm. You see, I said those three shvilim, those three paths. I had the spirituality. I had the Jewish tradition. But I was going about it in an an authentic way. So... People who want the the details. Oh yeah, oh. they could read the book on, or you can order on Amazon. It's called 40 Years in the Worldliness, My Journey to Authentic Living. And they can read the book and then they could see the movie, I Was Not Born a Mistake. I'm interested
0: in that moment. I want to get to, to your teachings now, but I, I do want to linger in that moment when you realize, okay, I'm not free. I need to be liberated. And I think this is a question that To some extent, we all have to be asking all the time. None of us ever truly gets there where we're being 100% authentic, right? I agree. We're getting there. We're getting there. Some of the Were there disciplines or practices that helped you get there? Was it this clean break where you said, I have to quit my job, uh, talk to a doctor, talk to my family? Or was it that Chabad wasn't the spirituality that was going to get there? How do you know when you re- come to that realization, oh. you're reading a Rav Kook text and you say, I need to, I'm need i not as free as I deserve to be. What's, what do you do
4: the next morning? <laughs> well, I did many things the next morning because there were many next mornings. For example, every Friday night, taking my children to the Western Wall, where we were all living at that time, talking about in the mid-1980s, part of the Friday night, Shabbat morning, Shabbat afternoon prayer is, Purify our hearts so we could work with you, serve you, be with you, God, in this relationship in truth. And it would eat at me, it would eat at me, it Would cre- I actually
0: suffered, I had nuts in my stomach. Because you're praying to God so I could be in truth and you felt I'm not in truth.
4: Exactly, yeah. precisely. So either the, either, if God really does exist, well this is a charade. And if God doesn't exist, this is really a charade. <laughs> so I needed to somehow find a reconciliation with this. So what I did first is I left. I felt there was no place for me, it was very hard. I le- uh, divorced, left Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. I left the world of Chabad, I left Israel, I came back to New York, and eventually I moved out to the west coast. And there was a several year period of real darkness where I was, it's like Yosef, it says in the pasuk, in the verse when he was looking for his brothers, and it says he, he was to'e he was blundering in the field, he couldn't find them. I felt I was blundering in the field, only I didn't know who I was looking for. I knew I had to really find me, and I knew what had to be done. On my 50th birthday, and this is the next morning. Mm -hmm, So to speak. So to speak, after 10 years of just (laughs) tumbling down this rabbit hole like in uh, the uh, Alice in Wonderland, I woke up to my 50th birthday. It was both the most painful, excruciatingly painful, and most growth-producing day in my life because I hit my spiritual rock bottom. I actually felt from such a place of loneliness and disconnect I actually felt I had no more energy left to breathe air into someone else's body while I, in essence, was becoming lifeless. So I knew what I had to do. And I cried out or I cried in to the God inside of me, to my soul, to the divine presence, to the still small voice, help me, help me be with you in truth. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready because I can't go on like this. I can't be without you. I can't be with you the way I was, meaning God. So I so longed to come back to Jerusalem. I so longed to teach spiritual texts. But I knew I could not do it other than to be be be'emet'. Mm -hmm. And that began my transition. So I teach to that actually now when people feel spiritually in all different types of closets. right? They're not fulfilling their potential. They feel afraid. They're they're coming from a place of fear, survival-based
0: behavior. One of the most moving things I've seen in Pittsburgh in my travels there this year, where by and large, of course, after any great tragedy, most of life goes on as normal, right? Most people, you know, within a certain period of time, they reset to whoever they are. But you do see these people for whom there was this kind of moment. Except those who were traumatized. Except those who, well, except those who were traumatized. And many of them struggle to get back to just normalcy, right? right? And are not seeking a kind of transformative experience. But there are these people who said to me, this was the moment when I realized I had to put on a kippa," or this was the moment when I realized I had to learn something, or this was the moment when I realized I needed a kosher home, or this was the moment when I realized I had to stop davening every morning because it, that was not a meaningful practice for me. And
4: that was another next morning before this. My, uh, another next morning was when presenting myself in the male body, I took off the part and I stopped laying to fill in. Interesting. That also was the next morning. Interesting. Because I felt there was,
0: I, I couldn't do it anymore. I have a friend who's ex-chabad, and his wife and children are still chabad, and they live together, I assume, happily, and, I mean, they are a loving family, but he will go to shuls where there is, you know, no mechitza and mixed ovening and all that stuff, and his wife will not, and it's so interesting because the way he talks about it to me is very much the way you talk about it, It at was at a moment, he realized, I'm not living in, in mat in truth, and he loved everyone around him, except
4: himself. Exactly. <laughs> you know, in the past seven years, I've really devoted a lot of my attention and practice, both in learning, because I'm a lifetime learner, I'm a lover of text and really diligent scholarship, and then sharing the writings of the in the Rebbe, Rabbi Kalanimus Kalmus Shapira, Zechat Sadik the memory of a righteous person be for a blessing who perished in the Holocaust. And he writes about spiritual practice, about how to really encounter the divine within us. And not from a place of judgment, but from a place of experience. It's like instead of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree of judgment in Hasidut, in spiritual text, eat from the tree of life, the etzachim, which is the tree of experience. So what does that mean in practice? What that means in practice is... I learned from his text and from my meditation teachers, and I share with all my students and audiences all over the world, like now I'll be in Durham, North Carolina for three different classes, I will begin each class with a three to five-minute meditative contemplative sit in silence where one can hear oneself, where one can be more aware of their feelings, their own feelings, their own thoughts. And for the Pia whether I'm feeling stress, whether I'm feeling suffering, and he was the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. He knew what suffering was like. Yet, he said, whether you're feeling suffering, pain, or you're feeling joy, gratitude, celebration, all the feelings, each one of on their own, is a maftayach. is a key to your soul. Suffering can take you to where joy cannot. Joy can take you to where suffering cannot. It's allowing ourselves to go deeper inside of ourselves and trust that we indeed are created in the image of the Creator. No one more than us, no one less than us.
0: We get a lot of emails from people who think something is missing in their lives, religiously, spiritually. And I should say, by the way, we're not the people I think they should be writing to because <laughs> we do a podcast about Gal Gadot and you know <laughs> Jewish Hollywood and Bernie Madoff and occasionally you're yeah, not that. Simchas Torah. I mean, it's an unholy mishmash, and we are not spiritual guides, God, to help them. But they don't know who else to write to. Sometimes, some of them seem to be in friendship groups or marriages or fraternities or sororities or towns where nobody would understand who the true them is, You know, where they're in a relationship, let's say, with a spouse who—I mean, maybe they're both Jewish, but it, the assumption was they were both going to be secular forever, and they would do Passover and Hanukkah, and that would be it. And then all of a sudden, the person who's writing to us realizes, I actually want to go to synagogue, and my spouse would hate this. It's tough, right? Do people always have to leave? Do they have to have the, you know, how do you, how do you counsel people who are trying to negotiate
4: that difference between them and people they really love? I actually, my spiritual mentoring practice, I do that, and I distinguish, and I help people distinguish for themselves a very big difference, not necessarily a contradiction, but a difference between honoring one's spirituality. And our external observance of commandments of mitzvot, or participation in official prayer service, whether it's with a mechitza, without a mechitza, the observance of mitzvot, learning Torah, participation in communal uh, community prayer, are external expressions of something inside. What I believe people are looking for more today than when I came into Judaism in my early 20s, in the 1970s, we were looking more for structure. Tell us what to do, what to say, how to eat, how to make the blessing so we have some order in this world of chaos. Today, that's not enough for people. They're really looking for, they want to access that deeper part of themselves, which we call in Judaism, the soul, the spirit, the the still small voice. That's always speaking to us, but she speaks softly. She will never raise her volume, never raise her voice. So the only way to hear her is to lower the volume around us of all those distractions. You should, you could, you would, we expect. And then what I truly believe, this is one of my guiding own principles, is that if you really believe this is what's called upon you in your, in your shlichut, in your mission in life, it will not cause you to be in conflict with those around you that you love. Because God created us in love and wants us to live in compassion and in love. And at the same time, quoting Rav Cook, to be faithful to who we truly are. You know, I can tell you from my own experience that I don't like that phrase, the truth hurts. The truth does not hurt. The truth may create challenges. Lying hurts. Lying hurts. Deception hurts. Yeah. But to trust that, well, if I really believe this is who I really am, and this is I'm created by the creator, I'm a nivra of the bore, I'm a creation of the creator, and God wants me to be in healthy, sustainable close producing relationships with trust and, and, and with respect, and, well then of course, one way or another we'll negotiate this. This is sustainable.
0: But let's be real, there sometimes is conflict. I'm thinking of someone I know who is in a relationship with somebody who wants them both to make a lot of money. It's a marriage of many decades and she really wants to quit her job and do something to be far less remunerative and he feels like their deal was that for the lifestyle that they both supposedly always wanted, they were both going to have these large incomes. and okay. Huge changes would have to be made. I don't see that there's a bridge there.
4: The truth will hurt. I Well, I do believe there is a bridge. I don't believe that if each one is really true to themselves and at the same time they're truly connected to each other. I don't believe we are put in impossible situations. I can give you an example back. I know a couple. This is her second marriage, her first marriage. She's observant, brought up observant. She married uh, many years ago um, a man, also observant, and together they brought into the world four children and eventually they divorced. She felt very suffocated in the marriage couple of years later, she met another man. She lives in Israel, and he comes from a non-observant Israeli family. And there really is a connection there. And they got married. And about five months ago, they had their first child together. He is not Shomer Shabbat. She is Shomer Shabbat. They do it together. They support each other. They hold space for each other because they really believe they're supposed to be with each other. Mm-hmm. So he's not threatened by her observance. She's not threatened by his non observance. But it also takes a certain kind of authenticity on
0: both their parts. You can't be the lone authentic person in this.
4: Then we go dyad. back then we go back to where we started the quest for authenticity. right? Which really is so much, right? I mean, That's I t- it, yeah.
0: It's funny, I'm, I teach college students and I find that so many conversations that seem to be about other things are really about, authentic- yeah. are you being true to yourself? You yes. know? I think it's always a hard thing for people to do.
4: It's very hard. But it's
0: very hard when you have you know the careerist people whispering in one ear and the academic success treadmill people whispering in another and just sort of expectation yeah. and, and fear of the unknown whispering fear in. Fear
4: of the unknown. You know? We all have a fear of the unknown. That's the human condition. Some people, though, choose to go anyway, to jump off that high diving board, because you believe one way or another, it'll be fine. Other people live in the fear. That's the difference.
0: I often think that one of the great things my parents raised me with was it always seemed exciting to me to jump into the unknown. I mean, (laughs) it's scary, but also... I'm with you. I always saw the upside, you know. Now (laughs) Now you are. What is special about Judaism to you? One of the things I always want to talk with Jewish teachers about is, you know, I tend to recoil from the well-meaning, liberal religious tendency to say we're all on different mountains up to the truth, and we're all kind of doing the same thing just with different practices or different disciplines. I've always felt, although I haven't always had the words for it, that Judaism is very
4: much unique. Do you think we're different? I very much believe we're different. I believe innately we're different, and innately we're not different. What do I mean by that? That's not a contradiction, but it's okay, because the P.S.N. says we live in paradox, That's reality. Two and two does not always add up to four. I do share something in common with all of humanity. Because all of humanity, beginning with Adam and and Chava, Adam and Eve, however one understands the creation story, we all were created in the image of God. So the essence of all of us, I walk down here in Manhattan, I'm walking down Fifth Avenue, every human being that passes me is created in the image of God. However, the Torah also teaches us, and I I know this is like self proclaiming, so to speak, that there are 70 nations, 70 pure tongues, so to speak, classically, and also the Am Yisrael, the the nation of Israel. What distinguishes us from the 70 nations, and by the way, each nation also is called upon to figure out what's unique about them. It's not just like we're unique and then there are 70 nations that are all the same. Every nation is created with a general national mission. Not only do we all have a unique personal mission. I believe what our mission is, what our purpose is, uh, the the prophet Isaiah said it very simply. It's very very difficult it seems to do, but it's very simple in terms of words. To be an or to be a light to the nations, not because we're better, because we accepted the challenge. We were asked And from a place of free will, we agreed to be in this relationship where we can take the ideas in the Torah, not every one of the 613 commandments specifically, but the spirit of it, the spirit of living a life that really exemplifies that we really believe we're created in the image of God. And to go out into the world and share that by showing honor, by showing support, by really, I don't mean touchy-feely, like whatever you do is okay, as long as you don't hurt me. Do we have time for a short, short story? Yeah. Okay. The Kotzka Rebbe lived in the beginning of the 19th century. One of the main students of Simcha Bunum, of Prashischa, a very unique, real individualist Rebbe. He said, actually, the idea of a tzaddik, the best thing that tzaddik or a rebbe or a big figure can do is to help someone be more unique to themselves, not be like them. So one day, as the story goes, one of the uh, chasidim of the Kotzka rebbe, and this is like in the early 19th century in Poland, ventured out of his little hamlet and made the journey to see his rebbe. This was like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, not like, not like when I get on an LL flight in Ben-Gurion <laughs> and a day later I'm in your studio. Right, so this is a real pilgrimage. Yeah, right, this, right. this is a real pilgrimage. So he's, he, this, is like the, this is the moment of his... He's been waiting for this, and he's ushered into the Rebbe's study, and the Rebbe greets him, Shalom Aleichem, Baruch haba. How can I help you? What spiritual advice or counseling or guidance can I provide? So the Hasid says to him in all earnesty, I came here so you could help me find God. And as the story goes, and we all like to add our own nuances to it, he put his head down on the table and said, ay, 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 ay. you came all the way here, you left your wife and family, you journeyed through danger and, and it's expensive and this and that. To ask me if I could help you find God? God is everywhere. You, You could have stayed where you were and found God. So, of course, he breaks down crying, and then he opens up the question that the Rebbe wanted him to ask. Then what did I come here for? He said, perhaps you came here so I could help you find you. That's the greatest gift that the Jewish people can give, is to help ourselves, each other, and the world around us find themselves. So if people want your teaching, you can go onto my website, Y I S C A H smith.com. and I have a whole series of podcasts, Authentic Jewish Living with Yiska, which, by the way, also has a, it's, there's a specific Jewish message. It's living authentically, spiritually, through the pasuk, through the verse, but also it's a global message. And then there's a section on my mentoring, on my speaking tours of a community would want to invite me. I teach in Jerusalem in my home. I teach at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm going to the Limud Conference in December where there's 2,750 people from all over the world coming together to explore different texts. I'll be teaching spiritual practice there. So, yeah, check out my website. Check out the Pardes Institute website. Check out there's a lot of Jewish learning all over the world.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: I want to emphasize Not only would I love if people came and heard my podcasts, don't do it alone. Again, we're not that we need to be in community, but we need to be in community in truth, but met authentically. There's something we can all teach each other, and there's something we can all learn from each other. I, as an educator, am always learning from my students. My students are always learning from me. We're, we're, it's a shared it's a, it's a shared practice. We're in spiritual community together as companions. It's not that I have all the information, you have no information, so I'm over here, you're over there. No, much of what I teach is informed by you. So yes, we, uh, anyone who has anything on a Shabbat, uh, whatever they do on a Shabbat, invite someone over, share that, if they're inclined. And if they're inclined that's, a, that's a great way to build one's own sense of community, is at the Shabbat table. That's what I do in Yerushalayim, I love to do that.
0: Yiska Smith, Jew of the Week, <laughs> thank you for being here with us, it's been such an honor.
4: Oh, thank you so much for hosting.
0: That was me talking with Yiska Smith at Argo Studios. The United States premiere of her documentary, I Was Not Born a Mistake, is Tuesday, January 21st. You should check it out.
1: Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated best play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by The New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's Spring Season of Jewish Culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y.
2: Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill
0: you to call or ride To the mailbox. Uh, some terrific letters this week. First of all, our friend Faye Bayliss-Doofler. She writes, Liel, thank you so much for telling us that you pronounce hummus, hummus in the U.S. My husband makes fun of me for that pronunciation, telling me it must be pronounced hummus like Israelis. He texted me back. Well, if he does, we all should. And I agree. By the way, he's a huge fan of your tablet columns.
2: Ah yeah, man. There is nothing more annoying than trying to kind of pronounce things in their correct cultural, like just out of context. Be like, can I have a baguette? Like, no, just give me a baguette. And you're in America.
0: On to the next letter. Hi, J. Crew slash coup. I like that she's calling us the J. Coup in in homage to that. Was it a Southern pastor who said there was a Jew coup against Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can settle a wedding dilemma. I'm Jewish, marrying a Catholic in May. The majority of my side of the family is not religious. We are having a secular wedding performed by a good friend. But I'd like to incorporate some Jewish elements into the evening. One thought was to open the dance floor with the Hora. But I'm worried about offending people by picking and choosing religious elements for the wedding. I'm also worried that there won't be enough Jews in the room for people to know what to do. What are your thoughts? Thank you, Molly. Stephanie, how do you answer Molly?
1: I'll take the last line first, which is, If there's a horror, everyone joins in, even if you've never seen one before, even if it's a culture that you're not familiar with. I think basically the horror is your standard Jewish wedding dance, right? Like the Jewish wedding chair dance as Meghan Markle once had. This is a pretty standard practice, even in the most sort of like a religious wedding of Jews. I think that the Hora is pretty standard and I don't think it's offensive at all because there's nothing really Jewish about it. I remember when Ben and I sat down with our wedding band, with the leader, we had our meeting to discuss what we wanted and they were like, we do a great Hora. We do Hava Nagila into Shalom Aleichem into Simintov Mazel Tov. And I was like, you are not a Jewish person, yet you seem to know the Hora better than anyone the horror actually is sort of like pretty much for anyone everyone loves it
2: right it's like the bagel which is why i really despise it when we were getting married the greatest blowout i think lisa and i had was over the horror because here's the thing i I totally understand even if you're not religious the wedding itself right The, the the ceremony If you want to combine some religious elements this is i think very beautiful and meaningful because there's a spiritual aspect to it etc but then you get to the party part and all of a sudden to come up with this dance that has absolutely no real cultural significance to you and you just do as this kind of like one signifier of like oh look jew it's like yeah i like bagels and i like dancing this one stupid dance do you feel the same way about stepping on the glass no, but stepping in the glass has a, has a spiritual significance. That That is part of something that we have done for centuries. And the horror isn't. The horror has kind of, you know, ceased to exist for a very long period of time and then was resuscitated via, you know, the pioneers in Israel who brought it from the old country and then kind of made its way into cultural, you know, prominence here. It's not a real thing, to be perfectly so, honest. I'm going to disagree a little
0: bit with both of you. At my wedding which was uh, very small. We had 65 people or something. We we really we invited- We get it. We weren't invited. <laughs> we didn't know you guys yet. But here's the thing. We had a small wedding. Um, we really invited like our closest friends and our siblings and parents, but like no aunts or uncles or cousins. The Jew count was actually fairly low because a lot of our best friends are not Jewish. A lot of our oldest friends, the people who are really most inner circle and were invited, are not Jews or they're half Jewish or they're married to somebody who's not Jewish. Like When you actually got down to who they're would feel culturally competent to start a Hora, even in this small little dance floor at this small restaurant. It was pretty low. They did pick us up on chairs, but they might've picked us up on chairs during like George Michael's faith right. or, or you know- Well, well eating or, appetizers. Or all the yeah. single ladies or something. Like, I don't know, you know, we had, I had made some mixed CDs and that was the music. And so we <laughs> were- Etheridge. Yeah, we were picked up on chairs, but I don't think there was a Hora. Molly might be right that if the band starts up the horror, there might be a few people who are trying to get it going and everyone else is awkwardly like, I'm a Gentile, I'm allowed to do this, or like, I saw this on Everybody Loves Raymond once, or like, <laughs> they or the you know, the Wonder Years, didn't Paul's family have a horror? Like, there might be, she's not crazy, and I think she's, it's okay for her to think about that. So that's my slight disagreement with Stephanie. My slight disagreement with Yuliel is I feel like for the party, play whatever music you want. Whatever gets people going and dancing, If if she thinks it'll get them going and dancing, I don't have that problem. But I think we're all kind of skirting the deeper question she's asking, which is, look, she's from a non-religious family. She doesn't say whether she has any religious feeling. What she says is, we're having a secular ceremony, I'd like some Jewish elements. She's worried about offending people by picking religious elements. She seems to have a lot of unanswered questions in her own journey, marriage, future. I just want to say, Molly, like this is a wonderful opportunity, and I'm not prescribing anything for you, but this is a wonderful opportunity for you and your husband to sit down and think about, well, how Jewish are our lives going to be? and. If they're not going to be Jewish at all, then I'm not sure why you do want religious elements in your ceremony.
2: I agree with that. But at, at the same time, I think that if she, as she clearly does, has some craving for something Jewish in her wedding as a Jewish woman, she should pick whatever makes her happy, whatever is meaningful and beautiful to her, and not really worry about what other people may may think or do, because it's her wedding, it's her moment of being you know, close to her husband, close to God. and. Just do whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy and feel connected.
0: Agreed. And she should buy the wedding guide that was written by Anita Diamond, who was on our show for our wedding episode uh, and also wrote The Red Tent. And I mean, there are traditions that you might not know about that actually might be the thing that you were looking for all along. Amen. Uh, Dear Mark, Stephanie, and Liel, please give a shout out to my son, Ryan, who's becoming a bar mitzvah on January 18th. Ryan, here is your shout out.
2: Mazel Tov, Ryan. Mazel Tov. Today you're a man. Mazel, 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 Mazel Tov, Ryan. Mazel Tov. Today you're a man, 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 man. Mazel Tov, Ryan. Mazel Tov. Today you're a man. Mazel Tov, Ryan. Mazel Tov. Today you're a man.
1: Mazel Tov, Ryan.
2: Uh,
0: He and I listened to your podcast on our bus ride home from Shul, so it's been part of his pre-bar mitzvah training. I also recently learned that my grandmother, Leah Minovich, his great-grandmother, or Bubby, as he calls her, listens to your show as well. At the tender age of 94, or maybe 95, her real birthday is a bit uncertain, She's making the trek from Vancouver to a cold Winnipeg winter to be with us. She deserves some recognition for that. Yes, she does. Bobby Leah, we, we recognize you for that. This sounds like an amazing simcha. We wish we could and be we there. And we
2: love you. We love you. We love you.
0: The letter continues. Regarding your question about how to respond to the recent increase in anti-Semitic violence, I am 100% behind Liel's suggestion to wear a kippah in public. The question is... What can we women do that is equivalent? I've actually worn a kippah in public for a few days when I visited Montreal shortly after they passed a new law in Quebec banning the wearing of religious symbols by government workers. I did not receive any negative feedback, but I was approached by a curious onlooker who had never seen a female wearing one. It was a nice conversation, but I'd prefer to have a way to express my Judaism publicly that isn't tied to other complex issues like changing gender roles. One obvious possibility is wearing Jewish-themed jewelry, but it doesn't have the same level of religious expression as a kippah so it would not have the same impact for me. Best, Melanie Richter's. I don't know, Melanie. That's a fabulous question. What is the female equivalent of showing some Jewish pride with a yarmulke?
1: So actually, I was having this conversation at Shabbat dinner at Congregation B'nai Tzedek in Fountain Valley uh, this past week. It's interesting because I think for women, it's usually jewelry, right? You could wear a Jewish star, you could wear a chai, you could wear a hamsa. And I'm actually like in this weird place right now where I like I would like to wear one of them. I don't think it's going to be a Jewish star necessarily. That's just sort of not my style. But I do think maybe like a little chai would be really – I mean, a hamza is sort of the easy way out, right? Because it it doesn't scream Jewish necessarily to people who don't know what they're looking for. It's Middle Eastern. It's sort of, you know, something like that, the way like the evil eye
0: is – A hamza is a little bit of a secret handshake, which is other Jews know that you're doing it. Yeah, which I really Arabs like. Going um, but you. I sort
1: of like the idea. Like my grandpa Al gave me his high a bunch like a long time ago, and it's like on a long chain, and I kind of want to like pull that one out and wear like an old school high Ooh, necklace. I yeah. think that'd be really fun. I love it. But yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's like you're not going to cover your hair. You're not like it's 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 a little bit. This is going to shock you, but men have it a little bit easier because you can wear a kippa. It doesn't say like, I'm a married woman. Like there's no real restrictions on it necessarily. Like, you right. just throw it on and you could take it on and off easily. So it's it's sort of, there's nothing really like that for women. You're not going to like start wearing s- skirts instead of pants because that signifies something a little bit different.
0: Can I say something a little bit crazy that just occurred to me? And it might be entirely wrong, but we're not going to cut it. We're not going to edit. I'm just going to go out there. How about if you're, if you have really, really curly hair and you're always straightening it or blowing it dry, just Stop.
1: Just look more Semitic. Oh, that is so funny. Just look more that Semitic. That
0: is hardcore. Now this doesn't this doesn't do schnitzel for my you know daughters who have like straight hair right. and are very fair or whatever, and it doesn't. But this is not going to mean anything for a lot of people. This is not an option. But like if you're somebody who is in some way toning down historically Semitic features, right. stop. stop. Just but stop. then again,
1: by the way, this is another thing. I mean, that's sort of a thing putting on women. It's it it's, it's it's all Yeah, but bit she more said loaded. what can women
0: do? I I no, I, you're right. You're right. There is something gendered there because women have certain pressures of appearance. It, right. There's a whole there's a whole disanalogy. There's a disequilibrium and I agree with that. I'm acknowledging that. But I'm throwing it out there as saying like
2: Let I don't know. Let your jufro fly. Let your
0: jufro fly. I, I am saying Yeah, I mean, I, mean, you I don't You have
2: know. to do it
1: also then, Mark. Uh, look, I look I haven't, haven't gotten a haircut in my
2: He's he was cursed with perfect wavy what do you straight, me? luscious thick hair. I walk
0: around being five seven and a half all the time. Right. Like
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, he he gave it the office. He represents I, I said, our people. <laughs> I don't that know. is
1: some Jewish pride.
2: Leo, what do you got? <laughs> Any suggestions for Melanie? I, I, I love your your suggestion. I'm going with well, both of you. All right. All right. But curly hair, highs all 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 over the place. The listeners will help
0: us with this one. Write to us on Orthodoxy And if you were cursed
2: with straight hair, go ahead and make it curly. Get a perm. Yeah. <laughs> A while back, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Ambassador Donny Dayan, the Consul General of Israel in New York. Donny is a fascinating person. He was born in Argentina, made aliyah to Israel, became a very successful business person. He was the head of the Yesha Council, which is the body that oversees all Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria, or as some might call it, the West Bank. Now he's the ambassador, as you can imagine, to some, uh, especially on the Israeli left. He's a controversial figure, but a really astute observer of all things Israel, Zionism, politics and the way things are going, we sat down and talked about the relationship between American Jews and Israel, the situation on college campuses, and a host of other things that we care about. Have a listen. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here, Leon. So let's begin uh, with a sort of overall sort of 60,000-foot view question. We hear a lot of things, some of them contradictory, about everything from the real state of anti-Israel propaganda on campuses to the state of Israel uh, diaspora relationship. You're the ambassador to New York. It's a sort of hub of Jewish communal life. Give us a sort of overview of, of how you see the kind of real challenges that you meet every day in your office well, you know
6: I, I i would answer that question uh, through the audiences that i decided to make as our top strategic priorities um, uh, because that virtually answers your question sure. right here uh, my first task was to prioritize because in new york city in the new york area i'm in charge of five states and new york state is only one of them certainly the one that I devote most of my time and effort, our time and effort, um, if you don't prioritize, you do nothing. Now, um, the first priority, of course, is the Jewish community. Uh, We are a kind of uh, embassy of the state of Israel to the Jewish community in America in general, not only the five states we cover, because those five states have 40 to 45% of the Jewish population of America, But no less important than that, all the national headquarters of the Jewish organizations, except the lobbying organizations, are in New York City. Uh, So uh, for me, uh, the relationship between Israel and the American Jewish community is uh, number one priority. And then I had to decide uh, on the non-Jewish issues that we are in charge of also, of course. And uh, I decided to prioritize the Latino community. I think that uh, not only because I am myself kind of Latino, I was <laughs> born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, I speak uh, fluent uh, Spanish, and no, no, that's not the reason. The reason is objective. I saw the numbers, I understood that if we don't reach out to the Latino community now, uh, in 30, 40 years, when they are 30%, 35% of the American electorate, it will be too late. And the second, it might surprise you, is the liberals. Um, I am worried about the growing gap in support for Israel between conservatives and liberals. And I say conservatives and liberals, not to say Republicans and democrats, because I don't want to get too partisan, but uh, you can interchange the words. And uh, my task, as I see, as is to try to close that gap as much as possible, obviously by Increasing support among liberals, not by decreasing
2: support among conservatives. <laughs> so you don't believe uh, for one minute this drumbeat that a lot of us here and some of us myself included, contribute to that the gap between israel and and the progressive left is sort of unbridgeable, that the upcoming, you know, leaders of the Democratic party, are so uh, disinclined to support uh, Israel. You don't think that's true. You think good work could that gap. I
6: think uh, we must try. I think we must try. I am a, a big believer in uh, the need of Israel to be bipartisan in American politics. You know, there are people that believe that the strong alliance, which is really unique between Israel and America, started with President Truman in 1948. Wrong. President Truman did the historic act by recognizing Israel 7 or 11 minutes after its inception, but then there was an arms embargo and uh, Dwight Eisenhower and even JFK, uh, we had friction with them. I think that uh, it's not a coincidence that the alliance as we know it today was forged by two consecutive presidents from opposing parties, a Democrat from Texas, Lyndon Johnson, and a Republican from California, Richard Nixon. We needed two consecutive presidents from different uh, parties, from both parties, in order to make it an alliance with America and not an alliance with a part of America, one party in America. I think we have to keep it that way. I will tell you the truth, Liel. I am one of those persons that is completely convinced. I believe that from the bottom of my heart that Israel has all the merits to be a progressive cause in American politics. And we have to show that. The level of success, it depends not only on us, it depends on currents that in American politics that have nothing to do with Israel and we we don't have many uh, ways to influence them. Nevertheless, we should try.
2: So when you hear criticism, which is very prevalent here, especially among the left, that Israel's current prime minister, at least as of this recording, Benjamin Netanyahu, has made a real strategic miscalculation by aligning himself way too closely with the Republicans and famously going and delivering that uh, speech in Congress uh, during the time of the Iran deal negotiation. D- do you support this criticism? Has has he gone too far? No, to one side? no
6: I don't think. That. I think this is uh, an optical illusion. I think that, uh, uh, look, Israel has a, a strategy to be as close as possible with any administration the American people elects. And, uh, you know, our close relationship with the current administration, I believe that uh, if Secretary Clinton would have been elected president of the United States, we would have made the same effort to have close, intimate, familial relations with the Clinton administration. Now, it's true that in order to have a kind of uh, relationship that like the one that we have the current administration, we need to to tango. Uh, When the former, the previous president, for instance, in his first, trip to the Middle East, uh, visited Cairo, but skipped Jerusalem. That was a sign that uh, he didn't want the tango to be so closely danced. The current president, the the current administration, in his first trip abroad, he visited Riyadh and Jerusalem. And it was also a signal. But it's not about Israel, it's about the administrations that decided to, one decided to keep us in a certain way at an arm's length, and the other To
2: embrace us. You said something really interesting a few minutes ago. You said, I believe that Israel really should be a a big cause in in progressive circles. So when you meet, and and I know that you do frequently, people from the sort of hardcore left, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free type of people. Make the pitch. No, no, I have to
6: correct you. I don't make the that sort of people, those are really a lost cause. Those are lost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. People that says from the river to the sea, Palestine has to be free means uh, I don't, I think that Israel shouldn't exist. So what can I talk with him about?
2: So assume no. I'm a hardcore leftist who yes. still wants to listen to you. Make your case for Israel as a progressive cause. It's very interesting.
6: Look, the first thing the, uh, is Israel's democracy. Now, look, people tend to uh, subestimate the fact that Israel is a democratic state. I think that in the circumstances in which Israel was created, basically by immigrants from Eastern Europe and from the Middle East that were devoided from any legacy of democracy. The fact that they decided and established from day one in in the midst of a war, a democracy is nothing short of a miracle. And that democracy uh, prevails. Uh, I know that there is propaganda that says that the there is uh, no equal rights in Israel. That's uh, nonsense. Uh, you have uh, Arab uh, justices in the Supreme Court, Deputy Commissioner of the Police, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that's remarkable when I compare that with other countries that were in similar situations, much more robust countries like this country, for instance, in World War II, uh, with the internment camps for Japanese Americans. And I compare that with the democracy of Israel, I think we should be very proud. That's one thing. The second thing is, uh, uh, you know, there is criticism in Israel, uh, of Israel for being a, a nation state. There are those that call it an ethnocentrist uh, state. Most of the countries in the world, especially in Europe are. But people ask me, why do you need a Jewish state? Is the fact that you are a Jewish state problematic in progressive ideology? And I say, look, what's a Jewish state? A Jewish state is a state in which the non-Jews have less rights. No, the opposite. In a Jewish state, non-Jews must have the same rights. Otherwise, it's it's contrary to Jewish philosophy. But the best way I can explain what is a Jewish state and why is needed is by an example. And that example happened in 1991, when the Jewish community of Ethiopia was under physical threat, concentrated in Addis Ababa, and Prime Minister Shamir... Paralyzed Elal, sent all the fleet of Elal back and forth, back and forth to Addis Ababa to emancipate, to liberate the to Jews bring of Ethiopia during them, to repatriate them home. Now, that's the reason a Jewish state is needed. And if you don't think that's a progressive cause to a country that sets a, fl- a probably the first time, only time in history sends a fleet to Africa to liberate rather than to enslave. Then I don't know progressive progress is. And the last thing is, you know, how the main accusation is the occupation. Now look, Israel made its share of injustices. Everyone does, we are not perfect. You know what Liel, we did our share of stupidities and prob- most probably we will also do in the future. But if I look at the big picture, the only stable pattern in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Jewish-Palestinian conflict, Zionist-Palestinian conflict, is that every single time that partition two states were offered, we agreed, we accepted, and the other side rejected. So, no, the current situation, it's not ideal, but my conscience as a Jew, as an Israeli, as a Zionist, is clear, and uh, uh, I think that also progressives should understand that. When I see a banner that says, end the occupation, I always ask myself, and sometimes if I have the opportunity, I, I, I also ask those that have the banner in their hands, okay, how? Yeah. And there are three ways to end the occupation. The first one is to dismantle Israel. I suspect that's what they want, those that have those banners in their
2: hands. Well, the BDS movement makes it very
6: clear that, that will that not, that Of course, that will not happen. The second is unilateral withdrawal. After Gaza, that's inconceivable not because of us, because of the Palestinian reaction that they decided that instead of Singapore in Gaza, they wanted Somalia in Gaza. And the third is to accept all the demands of the Palestinians that to, and this, this very day have included the, the flooding of Israel with so-called uh, refugees, which is the end of the, Palesti- the the Jewish state. They say it very clearly, no Jewish state in any part of, of Palestine. So. Look, uh, as unpleasant that the current situation may be, it's not uh, us to blame. And the contrary,
2: we are the side that strives for peace and even progressive should recognize that. I want to um, set aside for a moment these light, fluffy topics and talk about something that, that I know is really occupying you. A lot of your time, which is the relations between Israel and the American Jewish community. When you read any op ed or or book uh, or you know, kind of attend a panel these days, you're very likely to hear the following story: Israel and the American Jewish community are heading toward a divorce. There's a real big shattering because young American Jews are too liberal or they don't like the occupation or they don't like the fact. That Israel is increasingly intolerant of, you know, religious Jewish diversity, as you could see with the women of the Kotel, etc. What do you think when you hear such grim pronouncements?
6: Well, I think first of all, I really think it's hugely exaggerated. I see a, a, a staunch support for Israel uh, among the Jewish community uh, in the United States. But you know, we are, we are different. The two communities are different. The two big Jewish communities of our contemporary era, Israel and the United States are different. It shouldn't surprise anyone that we are different. We developed our communities with different needs and strategies. Israeli Jews had to survive to defend their country and to shape a Jewish society. American Jews had to blend into an existing society and it almost, would have been a miracle if we would have been similar when we developed our characteristics with two opposing needs: to create a society or to blend into an existing uh, society. I think that uh, if you ask me what is the most central value, Jewish value, for most Israeli Jews or for the Israeli Jewish collective, in as, as such, I would say Shivat Zion, the return to Zion. If you ask me what is the most important, the central Jewish value of Americans, is Tikkun Olam uh, repairing the world. And the challenge is to understand that, to accept that, and never the, to understand that we are different, but we are the same people, and therefore we need to show solidarity to each other. So, I think, Liel, that in the Israeli side of the ocean, we need to educate Israelis, that in some sense became indifferent to their American brethren. And in this side of the ocean, first of all, I am very worried about the crisis of Jewish education in this country. And uh, to educate that solidarity among families uh, can should exist even uh, when we differ in, in some of our central values.
2: So if you were unfortunate enough to find yourself, after you conclude this position, in another position, perhaps minister of diaspora or something like this, and, and you were to concentrate on two or three or four kind of big concrete ideas to bring this family and I love you call it that closer together is it reverse birthright where Israeli Jews come here and meet Americans is it Israel subsidizing American Jewish education after years of Americans subsidizing all things in Israel what is it?
6: I think that we need the different strategies each side of the ocean I think that yes in Israel we have to educate our society that you know when I came here to New York I had a strange feeling of deja vu and I asked myself why I am feeling deja vu. I mean, I've been in New York many times, but never lived in New York. So who is this deja vu about? And suddenly I I understood it's about my childhood in Argentina, in which you understand that, yes, there are Jews, there are proud Jews, robust Jewishness uh, outside of Israel, something that we Israelis tend to forget. I don't believe so much in reverse birthright. I would say probably reverse APAC. Reverse APAC meaning that uh, American Jews should have a much more robust presence in Israel uh, than they do today. Probably a continuous, robust, high level, a kind of embassy in Israel that will, first of all, educate, help us educate the, the Israeli society about who American Jews are. PR and also you know political lobby. Uh, if the European Union has a lobbyist in the Knesset, why uh, <laughs> American uh, jury can't have the the federations can't have a, a a lobbyist in the Knesset?
2: So if if I uh, were a high and here level... in
6: this side of the ocean, I think the most important thing, yes, I think is Jewish education. Look, I consider myself. I don't know if I'm a good product or, diff, or, or a faulty product but i am a product of two things i am the product of my family which was stonely Zionist, and the amazing educational jewish system that exists in argentina when i grew up there unfortunately i think that even in
2: argentina it doesn't exist anymore i love this reverse apac thing if i'm a high level american jewish leader i'm likely to say something when i hear a suggestion like this Listen, buddy, you know, uh, we try, but when we say, for example, hey, we would like to uh, allow women to pray in the Kotel, you guys say, no, that's not the way it works here. And when we voice criticism that's you know, a little too uncomfortable for you guys, you say something like, you have no right to criticize us because you don't live here, you don't serve in the army, you don't pay taxes, you're not citizens. How, how do you address that?
6: I will be very candid with you. I think there is a big difference between rights and positions. I think that American Jews deserve rights that are natural, a right of worship. I am aware that in Israel, of course, I think that we lack in in religious pluralism in Israel. You know, it may be a a cultural thing that uh, makes it difficult, a structural thing. Sometimes I know that I'm uh, here stepping on a minefield on both sides, on, on American politics and Israeli politics, but nevertheless, I will be brave enough to do it. <laughs> uh, in some senses, I sometimes compare it with the American Second Amendment. I remember, for instance, after Sandy Hook, President Obama went uh, on camera and wept, and he said, uh, "We will change uh, gun control laws in this country," and probably there was a majority for in order to do that among the. Population of the United States, but for structural reasons of American politics, it was impossible to do that to this very day. Uh, probably the same applies to Israel. Uh, I think there is a clear majority in Israel that will welcome our reform and conservative and and, and egalitarian streams in Judaism uh, to Israel, but we have structural politics that make it harder. Uh, I think that. Uh, I don't know if and when that will change, but uh, it, uh, positions is a different thing. Uh, so, rights are inalienable, should be given, and I, I, I hope that one day we will reach that. Positions is a different thing. In that respect, I also share the, 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 the belief that uh, we should listen to our American brethren, but ultimately, the political decisions on, on issues of life and death in Israel. Are for the Israelis only, and American American Jew again. That's the that's the the the, the sense of family. Uh, the solidarity of American Jews with Israel shouldn't be um, uh, a function of uh, the political decisions that Israel makes on those kinds of issues.
2: Let me conclude with the following question: We have a lot of listeners in these here United States of America. We have a lot of listeners in Israel. I want you to give. Each group, one bit of homework. I wanted to give Israeli Jews one thing that you would like them to do to better understand the mindset of American Jews. And I'd like you to give American Jews one thing to do or think about or contemplate to better understand Israel.
6: <laughs> Sometimes I hear Israeli Jews, the citizens of my country, um, to which I will return in, in less than a year, talking about reform and conservative Jews in a pejorative uh, way. And it reminds me always of the way that uh, people used to talk about uh, the settlers without knowing them. And, uh, people say about, for instance, the settlers, this and that, but no, I will never visit a settlement or meet a settler. The same thing happens with many Israelis. They think they know what is Reform Judaism, what is Conservative Judaism. They have no idea. But worse than that they don't want to learn because they would not visit a, a service in a reform synagogue or or even meet a, a reform rabbi that's the homework that i have for my Israeli Jews. So if Jews, you can't
2: come here, stream a service online. Exactly, watch, I understand that educate it, you yourself.
6: will see that the prejudices and the preconceptions that you have. are And for, for American Jews, I would say, uh, look, you. I will go back to the first word you used in this podcast, it, you, you spoke about divorce. And we have to understand, as I said, that we are different, but the notion of peoplehood who should be the leading value. I think that we are Jews, but our marriage should be as a Catholic marriage, a marriage without divorce. <laughs> I don't know if our marriage between American Jews and uh, and Israeli Jews, I don't know, it's a gay marriage, a heterosexual marriage. But it's for it's life, a marriage whatever it is. It's yeah. for life. And that's the way, I mean, I think that the word that you use, divorce, should be taken off the table and then we can find solutions. Every person that was in relationships know that if a problem arises in an environment of love, of solidarity, you can solve it. If it arises in an environment of indifference or hostility, it becomes much bigger than it really is. And I really do suspect that some of the issues that we have our symptoms are no and uh, uh, not the cause. The cause is that we, in some sense, yes, we grew apart. We should work in order to close that gap. I don't know. Probably Dr. Ruth Westheimer
2: <laughs> can help us in that. <laughs> so, one final, final question. In less than years, you said you'll you'll be back in Yerushalayim, and presumably you'll have some debriefing meetings and interviews with prime minister, with the press. What advice would you give to the people who are sort of steering Israeli policy to make this marriage of ours a more loving, kind one?
6: To care more. I think that we have to care more. We have to educate ourselves that we are the state of the Jews and not only the state of the Israelis. And the state of the Jews means uh, also a big responsibility. We cannot remember that we have brethren uh, across the ocean only when a uh, Pittsburgh or Halle or any other calamity of that sort happens. It should be 24 seven, 365 days a year. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's, I believe, the, the most important thing. If that happens, all the other uh, issues will be much easier to resolve. I must say that I, I came to public life some 10 12 years ago i would say a single issue person now i definitely return from here when the the main topic on my public agenda is israeli
2: diaspora relations ambassador Diane, thank you so much thank you
4: Hey
0: J crew, you may not know that the 4th Women's March is coming up this January 18th, this Saturday. A lot of us remember the first Women's March with some fondness. Unfortunately, in the years since, there have been accusations of anti-Semitism among the leadership of the Women's March. This is a story that has been covered a lot by the web magazine tablet that produces Unorthodox. And so we have a strong interest not only in the Women's March, but also in the question of how Jewish women are treated within the Women's March, uh, both at the highest levels of leadership and in many of the local women's marches around the country. As it happens, the pioneering feminist scholar Carol Gilligan, author of in a different voice, which you read in your women's studies class in college, and really helped create the field of women's studies, is now at New York University, where she's part of a working group looking at Jewish questions. And she recently wrote a paper called Discord in the Ranks, the Women's March and the Jewish Question. You can find it online. It's a very, very powerful piece. And so it was an especial pleasure for me to get on the phone with Carol Gilligan and talk about Judaism, anti-Semitism, and the Women's March. Here's a little bit of our conversation. So in this article that you wrote for Rabbi uh, Sarna's Collective at New York University, Discord in the Ranks, the Women's March, and the Jewish Question, you go back to an episode in the 1980s when you're at a retreat in, in Wellfleet in Massachusetts with Katie Cannon and other feminist theologians. And this was a story I had never heard. You talk about it as if it's somewhat well-known or at least in small circles. <laughs>
3: That's because you were not a member of my research group at Harvard, but what can I say?
0: Fair enough. <laughs> tell us about the Wellfleet incident. What is this story that you tell in this paper that you wrote?
3: You know what, pr- what prompted me to tell the story, for me personally, things that I don't really understand linger in my mind. You know. Like, how come that group that was imbued with so much hope, and in the paper I quote Katie Cannon as, as articulating that hope, that we were kind of finding our way through divisions among women, you know, so that we could really unite as women on behalf of girls against racism, basically. Because, I mean, it's 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 a rather obvious fact that people don't really often think about it. Women are not a minority group. I mean, we're a majority. And... Once you have women's suffrage, we're a political majority. So I'm always suspicious about divisions among women, you know, the old sort of Roman question, who is this serving? But it was a lingering question because this group had had so much hope. And then it suddenly there was, in the second year of the group, I think it actually was the early 1990s, a student of mine had studied with Katie Cannon, who's a very prominent black Episcopal priest, feminist. And she introduced me to Katie and Katie and I got along right from the start. And I said to Katie, would she join me in leading a series of retreats on women and race for my research group? And then we assembled a group of women, basically half African-American, Latina, women of color and half white women. So we started meeting and we met in people's houses and things had been going very well And in that second-year meeting, it erupted into a crisis where, at a certain point, Katie Cannon started to speak about women of color versus white women as a division between the oppressed and the racists. And my students, my mostly white students, they were kind of stunned into silence. I mean, here they were being spoken about as racist, and they felt they, they weren't saying anything So a member of this group happened to be an Argentinian psychoanalyst whose specialty was to help women to overcome inhibitions about expressing anger, and I don't know exactly what motivated her, but in the middle of this discourse about women of color and white women, the oppressed and the oppressors, she suddenly kind of put her hands out forward, and she said, what the fuck, you know, don't give me this shit meaning I'm not responsible for what happened in the United States to women of color or, you know, this division. The group was shocked. Or maybe she was modeling women's expression of anger. There was a stunned silence. Katie leaned her head back and broke eye contact with the group. Nobody said anything. So I'm sitting there, and I am the only Jewish woman in this entire group. I had not thought about my Jewish identity Or my Jewish history prior to this moment, but suddenly I thought this conversation sounds very familiar to me because in the world I grew up in, there was a similar division. Except it wasn't between women of color and white women; it was between Jews and non-Jews, and it was during the Holocaust. So Jews were being were the victims of genocide. And non-Jews were among the people who were the oppressors.
0: And now, of course, what you're seeing as you're sitting there in Wellfleet is, and since in a lot of ways, Jewish women who have historically been victims of oppressors getting coded as white for the purposes of the American discourse. That's right. Discourse, Correct. Which...
3: I was on both sides. So I felt I was the only one. So I said, you know, this reminds me of this conversation with in my childhood, the world was divided between Jews and non-Jews. And that was also... A life and death matter at the time. So, just as the the women of color had, the black women had said at one point to the white women in the group, "Where were you, white women, when they came for me in the middle of the night?" You know, for the Jews, a similar question: "Where were you, non-Jew?" You know, when they came for me. So, I turned to Katie and I said, "You know, to you, I'm a woman of no color, and to me, you're a non-Jew."
0: <laughs> and she was not receptive, I gather, to this turn in the discussion. No.
3: Yeah, that was the end of the discussion. And as you said just before, I felt like we've, we're back at that point, except the, the implication right now is that the white Jewish women can't speak. And the point of my paper was really to say, wait a minute, in some ways it's very important for the white Jewish women to speak because we, we challenge this construction. We're on both sides of this equation.
0: Yeah, it's really it's a unique role, actually, or not unique, but it's a special role that not everyone. Yeah,
3: well, it's a place where there's a silence that needs, I think, to be engaged and broken. And white Jewish women are in a position to break that silence. And that was the question in my paper.
0: And one of your points is that even after the turnover in, in the leadership of the Women's March, where they added some Jews, there are still no white women or women who appear phenotypically racially white, Jewish on the board, that they'll only allow Jewish women on if they also come from other minority groups that sort of ratify them in certain way, either they're sort of gender minorities, trans women.
3: That kind of undo the Jewishness. Right. To undo, the, to sort of make up a tone for the Jewishness. Well, you know, I, you know, I do have to say that after this latest go around where they have had this national search and board of directors appointed that was supposed to be unifying principles of the March this year, it turned out that somehow among those was a rabid anti-Semite. I mean, so they had somehow passed through their their screening procedure until the anti-defamation League pointed this out and repeated some of her comments, which went way beyond, you know, uh, Palestine from the river to the sea and Zionism is racism, to say that there's no need for a Holocaust museum because all of Israel is a Holocaust museum or something like that. Anyway... Only then did the board then ask her to resign. So they still weren't picking up on anti Semitism as a problem. Now I notice in their current, you know, information they list Jewish women among the women they want to have involved. And two of the women who had been involved in the exclusion of white Jewish women are no longer on the steering committee.
0: So going into the Fourth Women's March, you know, how are yeah. you feeling about the Women's March as an idea, as a concept? Uh, what, is, what does Carol Gilgan think about the Women's March 2020?
3: Well, what Carol Gilgan thinks about the Women's March 2020 is Carol Gilgan thinks women are a majority group. And Carol Gillian notices that if you take, in terms of voting patterns, I mean, there's no group more progressive than black women. I mean, that's 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton, but it's also Jews. So if you're trying to split the left or the progressive voice, or if you take it out of the political language into, you say, this is a time in history where... And ethical care is extremely important given climate change, given nuclear weapons, Uh, it's extremely important to have women's voices out there.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but when you said trying to split the left, I mean, you know, we don't want to lapse into some sort of, uh, and I think you caution against this in in your piece, into some sense that the outside dominant male is trying to split the left. I mean, it's something women are doing to themselves. It's something that certain forces on the left are doing to the left.
3: that, That was part of my question. Exactly. This this was not outside some some group of horrible males. Coming it's not the in Koch brothers doing it. It's No, it's not. It was women and it was specifically um women of color. At least their voices were being amplified. That was I was suspicious about that. I mean, but those were my questions. I would say that women's voices are out there in the public, the women's march. It strikes me as very important. I really am looking for some address from the leadership of the Women's March to the questions I raise in my
0: paper. Well, everyone should read the paper. It's called Discord in the Ranks, the Women's March and the Jewish Question. I want to thank you for all the work that you've done and the work you keep doing. And thanks for being a guest on Unorthodox.
3: Well, you know, thank you for asking me about my paper. I'm delighted to talk about it.
2: Do you have any Mazeltovs this week? I do. I want to correct uh, a, a vile act of anti Semitism that was perpetrated against our people this week when the Oscar nominations were announced. Mr. Adam Sandler, the Sandman himself. Passed over? Passed over, not by the Angel of Death, but by the members of the Academy for his amazing role in Uncut Gems. So, sir, Sandman, man, dude, Mazeltov, you will always be a winner for me.
1: He did have a great tweak which said, Bad news, Sandman gets no love from the Academy. Good news, Sandman can stop wearing suits. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, my massofts, I've I've got a whole a whole bunch. First of all, massoft to everyone who has started doing Dafyomi, uh, especially the people who are doing it in English, the people who may not have the the Aramaic as it were to sit with the old text but are online finding English translations. It's a it's a really uh, cool funky thing to be doing. I also want to give a mazel tov to New Jersey State Senator Loretta Weinberg, who is trying to pass this bill, ending religious exemptions for vaccinations in New Jersey. She's trying to save young and helpless and innocent children from being infected with measles by the children of crazy parents. As she said to the papers yesterday, the bill is being tabled and isn't being voted on because a lot of her fellow legislators are scared by anti-vaxxer crazies. She said, quite bluntly, the science is settled on this. She says they're going to reintroduce new legislation soon. They call this bill the what are you stupid <laughs> act of 2020? <2020. laughs> new Jersey, come on, give us something besides the Joyce Kilmer rest stop, please. Right. Also, a Tov to Julie Brooke, who won my contest for best holiday card. She sent us a picture of her dog wearing a talus with a little <laughs> necklace. That says, that says Hanukkah bitch. And it's just hilarious. And we were going to send her a free copy of the newest Jewish encyclopedia, but it turns out she has one. So the copy is going to the Collins family whose holiday letter was simply uh, sublime. And finally, our loyal listener, Stephanie Carroll, writes in and says, please wish Debbie Prince and David Goldberg a hearty Mazel Tov on the marriage of their daughter, Ali Goldberg, to Zach Ellis on September 1st. And while you're at it, please wish my husband, Skyler a happy 22nd anniversary. We belatedly wish um, Debbie and David a Mazel Tov on getting the new son-in-law. We belatedly wish Skylar uh, a happy 22nd anniversary to Stephanie. You married well, Skylar. Uh, Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov?
1: So I don't know if you know this, but I was in Fountain Valley last week. So I've heard. Um, (laughs) And someone came up to me before the event and basically said, I want to give a Mazel tub on your show. She told me the Mazel tub, and I said, come with me. I know Shabbat services are about to start, but come with me to the rabbi's office. And I took out my phone and recorded her because I just thought this was amazing. So this is my proxy Mazel tub this week. I'm Linda Spitz. We're in Fountain Valley. Orange County, California, and Mazel tov is from my mother, who is having a bat mitzvah in honor of her 95th birthday, Sylvia Kaplan from Chicago. Mazel tov, Sylvia, thank and thank you, you so much.
0: Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Please send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call them into our listener line, 914-570-4869. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Alana Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Brian Michelson of OHEB Shalom in Wyoming, Pennsylvania. I'm coming for you. Missing, we come to you from Argo Studios, which is having a drink with Marian Williamson right now. Shalom, friends. That beautiful Lachado di Hallelujah that you heard earlier, it was recorded for us by Rabbi David N. Young and Cantorial Soloist Jenna Sagan of that synagogue, B'nai Tzedek. Here's the entire thing.
5: Cinco.